It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Episode 6, Marker 30. Before we begin, a word of caution. The story we are about to tell involves situations that may be very disturbing to some listeners. So please take care as you listen. Previously on Rainwalker, The Lost Boy. Four months after Jalik disappeared, a letter arrived at the Times Union. Copies of this letter showed up in newsroom mailboxes around the region, too. It was anonymous, postmarked from Westchester County. That's three hours south of Greenwich. The letter was typed. It had typos and spelling errors. The grammar was inconsistent. It read, quote, Jalik still alive needed a foot soldier for this war on drugs. Picked him up, Route 40, Post 30. He's okay, no fake. He says, ask his mama and papa, who are the Macaroni family? My cat named Diamond. Why does Franti yell fire? Don't try to look, we are not there. There are many elements of this letter that were scrutinized, but one stood out in particular for police. This letter says Jalik was allegedly picked up on Route 40, Post 30, the night that he disappeared. It's the corner of Route 40 and Hegemon Bridge Road. That's exactly where you turn. I, I want yep. her to know that this, if you're coming from Latham, this is where you turn. This is where we turn today, Jessica, to go into Greenwich. Okay. This is a turn gotcha. to go to Hill Street. Wendy and I are standing near post marker 30 on Route 40 near Hegemon Bridge Road. It's a three-way intersection where people frequently pull over, mostly to check their phones and directions. You can barely see the post marker on the telephone pole. In the summertime, it's somewhat obscured by vegetation. You have to go right up to it to see the metallic numbers. Okay, so this is marker 30. See this pole here? Yep. It has a 30 on it. This, this is the where you can... I realize I've made this turn at least two or three times on my way back and forth to Greenwich for this podcast. I didn't even realize it was that marker 30. 
The spot feels very much like the official entrance to the village, like you know you're finally there when you make this turn. It bridges the gap between the seemingly endless rural country roads and quaint village neighborhoods. And to me personally, it was a sign that I would finally come upon a much needed gas station. We came back and it was after dark because it was pulling in and seeing somebody over there, but not knowing who it was. And that was the day before that was came the missing. That, so that, that was, was the night. The night. But I just remember there was a van going towards town. That's exactly where you turn. This is Sally. At least that's what we're calling her. She doesn't want to use her real name. She lives on the outskirts of Greenwich, near post marker 30. Back in the early days of the investigation, she told Cambridge Greenwich Police Chief George Bell that she saw something as she was returning to her house the night of November 1st, 2007. She says it looked like a van. To go to Hill Street. So it pulled in and it was parked like by where the pole was. And I remember coming in and you could hear that there was something something going on. Maybe the light was on of the van or whatever. You could hear there was something going on in the car. When we got home, the dog, Max, he was a big, doofy, brown dog, but he never barked. He wasn't a barker. And he barked most of that night. I kept looking out, and then that van was probably there for a period of time. 20 minutes, half an hour, something that was aware of, oh, it's still out there. The anonymous letter sent in February of 2008 alleges that Jalik was picked up by an individual or group of individuals at Postmarker 30. Police say Jalik's adoptive father, Stephen Kerr, told them he thought Jalik could have run away to join a gang in Albany. It's a theory that police doubt. I don't think there was any gangs coming up the road. And then we kind of laughed about, well, maybe the gangs were coming up, that's what the dog was barking at. Or maybe Jalik was there, you know? So. Police say Stephen Kerr gave them several theories about where he believed Jalik was, too, in those early days of the investigation. One was that he ran away to join a gang. Another was that he ran away to reunite with his birth family in Albany. Stephen Kerr told the Times Union in 2008 that he believed Jalik ran away to join the black community in one of the region's three metro areas, Albany, Schenectady, or Troy. Retired state police investigator Tom Aiken confirmed that Stephen Kerr also gave them a theory that Jalik may have been kidnapped by a religious cult that has an enclave outside of Greenwich. Another of his theories was that Jalik was kidnapped and sold into sex slavery. Police say they've thoroughly investigated all of these possibilities. Tom Aiken and George Bell have both said on record that they did not believe any of them are credible. By this time, four months after Jalik disappeared, police dubbed Stephen Kerr a person of interest in the case. The only person of interest in the case. 
That means they thought he had information that could help solve the case, or that they thought there was a possibility that he was involved somehow in his son's disappearance. Either way, the term carries no legal weight. But police were not shy in the following months about telling reporters they were investigating every detail Stephen gave them about what he says happened the night of November 1st. Stephen Kerr has never been charged with anything. He remains a person of interest in the case to this day. A week after the Jalik is Alive letter surfaced in early February of 2008, law enforcement got a warrant to search the 11 Hill Street house in Greenwich. That's Stephen's father's house where he says he and Jalik spent the night on November 1st. Police seized a computer and a printer from the property. Chief George Bell said at the time they wanted to see if there was any evidence that those devices were connected to the Jalik is Alive letter. No connection was ever made public. On the same day, state police divers searched an area of the Hudson River in Troy, near the site of the Troy Farmer's Market. That's where Stephen and Jocelyn used to sell their wares. They came up empty. A few weeks later, in March of 2008, Chief George Bell told the media that they had Stephen Kerr's cell phone records analyzed by the FBI. Retired FBI Special Agent David Fallon was the one who worked on it. Uh, back then it was, I would say, not relatively new, but sometimes we didn't know exactly what we had because we weren't up to speed on necessarily everything that a cell phone company could provide us. So you couldn't track somebody you know, second by second. We could theoretically ping their phone every second, but mm -hmm. the data would get overwhelming. So it's usually done incrementally. I mean, knowing where somebody's phone is at all times, the cell phone companies know that, but uh, law enforcement doesn't get access to all of those records. Fallon couldn't say much more, citing the fact that Jalik's case is still an active investigation. But in 2008, Cambridge Greenwich Police Chief George Bell told the Times Union that the data suggested, though did not prove, that Stephen Kerr may have been in South Troy that night, a spot that is significantly off the route from Red Robin to Greenwich that he said he took. That led to a series of searches in the South Troy area. The FBI also examined the letter Stephen Kerr says Jalik supposedly left on the kitchen table in Greenwich. That was the note that read, quote, Dear everybody, I am sorry for everything. I won't be a bother anymore. Goodbye, Jalik. The FBI confirmed that it was Jalik's handwriting, but they couldn't tell where or when it was written. Foster mom Elaine Person who cared for Jalik in the six days before he disappeared, says she doubts the note was related to Jalik's disappearance. She says she thinks that note was part of an assignment for his homeschool program that he wrote at her house. Do you know for sure it was written at your house, though, the goodbye note? We could not swear to that in a court of law. What we do know is that Jalik had homework to do 
And one of the things that his father told us that he had to do was that he had to write letters of apology. And if you look at that letter, it is a letter of apology. We believe once we saw it and read it, that it was a letter of apology to the kids at the school for him getting in trouble. In April of 2008, Texas EquiSearch came to town to assist with the searches. They came at the request of Jalik's adoptive grandmother, Barbara Reilly. Texas EquiSearch is a volunteer horse-mounted search and rescue team. They've done searches for famous missing persons like Natalie Holloway. They didn't find her, but they found others, people who were missing for months. EquiSearch brought high-tech drones and underwater sonar equipment to search for Jalik in the Battenkill River and in portions of the Hudson. The searches yielded nothing that was made public. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back to Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. In these months after Jalik disappeared, Barbara Reilly and her husband Dennis were fixtures at searches. They spoke to reporters as often as they could. They worked with foster parents Elaine and Tom Person on searches and events with their Find Jalik task force. Barbara camped out at a cafe in Greenwich every week, hoping someone would come in and share some new information. So have you come to terms that Jalik is probably dead? Yes, yes. I feel that he was killed uh, on November 1st, 2007. On Zoom from her home in Florida, she told us she refuses to give up the search for Jalik's remains. My backstory is when I was in high school, I had a child, gave him up for adoption. And I kept thinking, what if my child, you know, it, it was 12 years old and I learned through the media that he had disappeared and possibly was dead. You know, what? how would I feel? Who's Who would be searching for him? By April of 2008, Barbara and her husband were the only family left participating in searches and cooperating with law enforcement. During that same spring, she attempted to get legal custody of Jalik, but was denied. I think that's underlying it all. I, I mean, I, I would hope that my own, you know, he's a child, he's my grandchild, but I also had the history of giving a child up for his better good, that he would be cared and loved and taken care of for his eight, first 18 years at least, and that when he was, you know, a preteen, he wouldn't just be discarded and that nobody would care in the family. By July of 2008, Barbara was no closer to answers. In a fit of restlessness, she decided to drive the route Stephen says he took from the Red Robin to Greenwich. She went with two friends. They ended up at the house on Raven Way at about 9 p.m. on an early July evening. 
That's the 400-square-foot cabin where Jalik used to live on the outskirts of Greenwich. Stephen and his wife Jocelyn had moved to Vermont months earlier, so the house was empty. They still owned it, though. It's probably a few minutes after nine, and it's dark, and I got out a flashlight, and I went up to the door, and it wasn't locked, and it was ajar. It was just open an inch or two. So I pushed it open, and I walked in, and there was a couple pieces of furniture downstairs. It's a tiny home, as I think 20 by 20 feet, and, I, and then there was a ladder for a staircase, and I went up because I knew Jalik's sleeping area, and I went up, and there were his toys just kind of scattered in his area, just kind of looks like somebody had just chucked them up there, and then there were two, um, like, piles of laundry and in one pile I just shone the light and there was this bright yellow and I could see it was the yellow fleece. Stephen and Jocelyn had described Jalik as having possibly been wearing the yellow fleece when he disappeared. It was never definitively determined that he'd been wearing that fleece, but for months, searchers were instructed to keep an eye out for yellow. And I thought, I need to call Chief Bell because this fleece that I've been looking for my grandchild in in rivers, sticking out of a grave, you know, is washed, dried, and folded and sitting in their abandoned house. Neighbors on Raven Way spotted Barbara that night. Stephen and Jocelyn pressed charges. Barbara was charged with third-degree burglary. It was ultimately downgraded to trespassing, and she had to pay a $250 fine. A few days later, law enforcement searched the Raven Way home and found the fleece. Stephen Kerr's lawyer, Jeffrey McMorris, called the search suspicious. He told the Times Union he wondered if Barbara had been planting things in the house. The discovery of the fleece has never led to anything that was made public by authorities. One year after Jalik disappeared, his parents gave a statement through their lawyer. It read, Jaybird, you are always in our thoughts and prayers. We love you and miss you. Wherever you are, we want to come and bring you home. Please contact us or 1-800-RUNAWAY for a private message. Stay safe, son. Love, Mama and Papa. During the next four years, law enforcement would continue to receive tips. Some of them led to searches. They searched a dangerous portion of the Battenkill called the Hell Hole in 2010. They searched the house on Ravenway again after new owners consented. Several lookalikes were spotted throughout the region. One of them resembled Jalik so much that Chief George Bell said they had to give the teen a document to carry with him, proving he wasn't Jalik if he'd been approached. Jalik's case was featured on two national television programs. CNN's Missing in America in 2011, and TV One's Find Our Missing in 2012. Some who know Jalik fear the worst. It's hard. I can't give him a hug. I can't sit down and talk with him. I can't say, you know, I love you to him. 
In December of 2012, five years and one month after Jalik disappeared, Cambridge Greenwich Police Chief George Bell called a press conference. The investigation remains very active and has never been considered a cold case. Several individuals have been thoroughly investigated and eliminated via alibi or polygraph examinations. The status of this case, as of this, of this reading, has been changed from a missing person is now considered a probable child homicide. No suspects were named. Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald issued another statement through their lawyer, saying they were, quote, dismayed and discouraged at the elevation of the case to a homicide investigation. The statement read, quote, despite everything that law enforcement has had to say, we know that he is out there and will return to us someday, unquote. Chief Bell told the Times Union and other reporters that he was receiving no cooperation from Jalik's parents, and that Stephen Kerr was still very much a person of interest in the case. Barbara Reilly and her husband Dennis stood by at the announcement. We just need some closure. We need to know where our grandchild is, or what happened to him. He's got to be somewhere. A child, no one disappears. You know, Jalik was here November 1st, and November 2nd, he was gone. So what happened in that time span? That's all we need to know. Another five years passed before the public saw a major development. In late February of 2017, a hiker spotted a skull by the Hudson River in Greene County. That's about 60 miles south of Greenwich. The State Department of Environmental Conservation analyzed the skull and initially determined it was likely that of a 10 to 13-year-old boy. They said it had appeared to have washed up in the swampy area by the river five to 10 years prior. That all fit the timeline in Jalik's case. But two months later, forensic analysis revealed it was not Jalik. The state police said it was the remains of an unidentified 20 to 50-year-old male. A year later, Cambridge Greenwich Police Chief George Bell died of a heart attack. He had a 39-year career in law enforcement, but he never solved Jalik Rainwalker's disappearance. When he died, it was it was crushing. Barbara really had spent 11 years communicating with Bell on a near daily basis. And he and I became friends, basically. I mean, although it was still very professional. I never called him George. I always thought so many people call, would call him George. But, you know, I, he, to me, he was still Chief Bell because he was still the person who I relied on to try his best to find my grandchild. Former Times Union reporter Dan Higgins had also spent a lot of time with Bell in those early days of the investigation. 
if I couldn't get them on the phone, I would just leave the TU and I would drive to Washington County and I would just sit in the police station. And eventually, you know, George would, would show up and he would kind of joke and roll his eyes and say, oh, the press is here, it's Higgins. And he always teased me about being from Buffalo because he couldn't understand why anyone in their right mind would live in Buffalo, New York. Higgins says there was one particular moment he spent with Bell that sticks in his mind. There's a giant map of Greenwich and the surrounding area on the wall at the police station. Wendy and I saw it there, too. It's huge, and there's a lot of green. George pointed to the map and he said, one of our big problems here is that you're looking at the search area. And it was just hundreds of square miles of forests and lakes and rivers and towns. And it just really gave me a sense of the enormity of the problem. Higgins says Bell was very candid about what he believed happened to Jalik on the night of November 1st, 2007. But he also recognized that, you know, he was a law enforcement officer and he needed evidence. And this wasn't an action movie and he couldn't just go in and, you know, arrest someone on a hunch. Bell spoke openly on the record, too, of his frustration over the case. Here he is on Find Our Missing in early 2012. There's not one spatter of blood that we found, not one hair follicle or anything like that that could lead us to say there was foul play. Sergeant Robert Danko now heads the Cambridge Greenwich Police Department. He took over after Chief Bell died. Well, Chief was, he was old school. He was, you know, that's, he was from a different breed of police. Um, I mean, he did it for 40 years. Um, and, I mean, he was dedicated and, you know, very community oriented. And this case pretty much defined him. You know, he lived and breathed every day. Um, and he was relentless at working at it. Despite a lack of resolution during Bell's lifetime, police say that they believe their investigation has produced a solid homicide case. There's more to this case I can't tell you than I could possibly even begin to tell you. Retired state police investigator Tom Aiken says he won't even tell his wife about this case. This would actually be one of the very few cases, and she's heard a lot of bad ones, that there's a lot she doesn't know about this case because I could never even tell her. Aiken says he provided information on the investigation into Jalik's disappearance to the Washington County DA until he retired in 2014. He keeps tabs on it from his home in South Carolina. It's not a cold case, he says. He thinks it's prosecutable and winnable, even though there's never been a body recovered, nor a suspect named. He worries that precious time is ticking by every day. Not only are we all retiring or dying or leaving areas, but the more years you're away from a case, the more you forget about the case and you have a lot to refresh yourself with catching up on reports, interviews, details, and whatever any prosecutor wants to ask you. I feel bad every time you drive down through the village thinking where 
you know, this poor child is. He never showed up. The social security number never showed up. No, no sightings, no anything. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin Courtright was the Washington County District Attorney when Jalik disappeared. He's retired now. Wendy met up with him at his house in Greenwich. They talked about Jalik's case over iced tea on his patio. They ran after every lead possible. So I, I still think Courtright left good. office in 2014 after he lost a bid for re-election. He wouldn't say exactly why he never brought a case in the seven years between Jalik's disappearance and his ousting. Okay. If I had won my re-election, it's a case I would have looked at strongly to take to grand jury, possibly. Mm-hmm. There was some things going on there. I don't know how they were resolved, but there were some things they were tying up. The Democrat lost his bid for re-election in 2013 to Republican Tony Jordan. So what what would it take to bring it to the grand jury? Well, I can't comment on that as a as an ongoing investigation. Current Washington County DA Tony Jordan wouldn't tell us much. You know, I know I know our law enforcement is diligently working and and these things eventually work out. To try a murder case as Jaleeks is suspected to be, Jordan says you've only got one shot against a defendant. If the grand jury returns no true bill or a jury of peers at trial acquits, that's the end of it. Jeopardy attaches, and if future evidence comes forward or additional evidence comes forward, you're precluded from going forward. Jordan wouldn't say much more, but he bristled at the notion that Jaleeks is a cold case, even after 15 years. I don't really like that term. You know, I look at when I hear the word cold case, that strikes me as a case where every last bit of evidence has been collected and analyzed and there's just not anything happening with the case anymore. So it sits dormant. And then hopefully years later, you know, for instance, the Golden Gate killer, you know, something comes up that was previously unknown or even the Unabomber, right? Some more nationally recognized examples where all of a sudden something comes forward that was previously not known and they go back and relook at the file. Um, here, you know, it is an ongoing active investigation when leads come in and, and leads do come in. The day after we talked to Washington County DA Tony Jordan, we learned that the state police were conducting a search of a wooded area in South Troy in connection with the Jalik case. It was July of 2022, and it was the first public update on the case in five years. State police would not discuss what, if anything, came from the search. It was conducted near the South Troy Dodgers baseball fields, That's 34 miles south of Greenwich. The only thing police would say? The search was prompted by a tip. I'm doing a podcast and a series of stories on the Jalik Rainwalker. We were looking for Sergeant Dango over here. Okay, I'll just remind him. There he is. Oh, there he is. Okay. Anyway, a few days later, Wendy and I stopped by the Greenwich police station to see if we could catch Sergeant Robert Danko. We found him there, 
and it was another 90-something degree day. And the only room in the station that had any air conditioning unit was the courtroom. So he agreed to sit with us there in the cool. Uh, right now we're running with, I think, we have four full-timers right now, including myself. So we're, we're understaffed right now. Danko says only one of the officers he has on staff now were working with the department when Jalik disappeared. He himself was still a year away from joining the force. He came on in 2008. Danko says the state police keep him updated on their investigation of Jalik's probable homicide. There is a plethora of information that is flowing in all the time and looked into. And it's sad because, you know, obviously stuff is law enforcement sensitive. So there's only so much that we share to the public. But, you know, what the public is not seeing is that behind the scenes, this case is still going strong. Danko says he still gets tips from all over the country. The one that came in about the South Troy baseball fields, that came to him. He passes on the ones he finds credible to the state police. How much of your week would you say is taken up by dealing with this particular case? It goes in waves. Um, you know, there'll be a, a point where I'll get a, a ton of information that I have to sift through process and then, you know, I'll, I'll pass it along. Um, and then there's sometimes where it just goes, it goes cold, which is fine because it gives me a time to catch up on the newer cases that we're dealing with. If this case were to be solved, you know, someone were to be prosecuted, you know, whatever, like, would that, would that be like a huge weight off of your shoulders? I think it'd be a huge weight off of everybody's shoulders, including the community and any law enforcement that, you know, was involved. And I mean, obviously, we'd all love to see it just for, you know, chief's sake and just for the sheer fact that, you know, justice is finally, you know, served. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I think it would have a big magnitude in the community. Next week, on our final episode of Rainwalker, The Lost Boy, we'll join the most recent search for Jalik. If you see anything, don't touch it. <laughs> Just stop and call me over, okay? Rainwalker, The Lost Boy is a Times Union podcast. This series was produced and edited by Wendy Libertor and myself, Jessica Marshall. We had help from Lauren Stanforth, Susan Mahalik, Lori Todd, Erica Smith, Tom Crocker, Jeff Shearer, and Casey Seiler. Special thanks to Dan Higgins. Archival report footage came from local stations Albany's CBS 6, News Channel 13, and News 10, and from Find Our Missing. Our theme song is As You Make the Bed, by Amos Noah.